Hello and welcome to the Jigme Keltzing podcast. My name is Jigme Keltzing. Each week you'll hear fascinating conversations as well as stories from many professionals from a broad range of fields and experiences they've had. On today's episode, I'm joined by American bluegrass singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Rhonda Vincent. Rhonda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I mean, are you kidding me? It's an honor to have you on the show. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't know if Scott Sexton has been telling you, but I've just been trying to get you on the show for the longest time. Um, oh, but well, like, I appreciate that. Anytime now, you know, you know how to reach me. So, <laughs> yeah, which is, which is great. And you're, you're welcome to come on the show anytime. Um, Thank you. Uh, but I want to start by asking you about the Grand Ole Opry 97th birthday, uh, along with Loretta Lynn's tribute. Um, you stepped on the stage and as you always do, dazzle the crowd with your vocal talent. Uh, what were you feeling in that moment? Well, ironically, it had just been a week or two before that it was Loretta Lynn's 60th Opry anniversary. And we they had asked us to do a tribute to her that night. And so we did Blue Kentucky Girl. And then to be at the Grand Ole Opry on the 97th birthday of the Grand Ole Opry and just at her passing, once again, they said, you know what, can you honor her again tonight? I mean, everyone that was on the Opry that night, was we were doing songs in tribute to her, but so special. I, the last time I saw her in person was there at the Opry. And I have a picture with her. And I just think how special it was that I, I actually got to see her on that stage. In fact, I had gone out into the uh, uh, out to to watch out front. And I have video because I remember watching her being so mem- mesmerized, looking at this is Loretta Lynn on the Grand Ole Opry. And then I looked at the right next to me was the TV screen and they were. And so I took a little video of her on there. Probably should not have done. They're not. That's uh, probably not the legal things to do. But I have some personal footage of her. And the same thing was at the Ryman Auditorium at the Opry and really got to visit with her in the dressing room. So I am I feel fortunate to get to to have gotten to had some personal time with her. Uh, the first time I, I got to meet her was in 1985 when I was with Jim Ed Brown and we did a show. Now this was one of this is one of the craziest things on two levels. Number one, that she signed after the show. I mean, this is well after her, you know, the coal miner's daughter, the movie, and everything's so popular. We're doing this show with thousands of people, and we're standing in front of the stage to sign and meet everyone. And as we as we were standing there, all of a sudden the crowd came toward us at like this mass of people. And we were about to get pressed against the stage. The security people just they grabbed her up. They grabbed me up and helped Jim Ed up. I mean, it was before we even knew it. This was about to happen. And I was just like it was so surreal. And I'm I'm sitting here next, next to Loretta Lynn. So but she was just so nice. We're going to miss her so, so much. Mm-hmm. And speaking of legacy, I mean, you've you've said that performing would be a way of life for you. Um, can you just elaborate more on why you feel that? Oh, I mean, I grew up in a musical family, so I haven't ever known anything else. Music is traced back five generations in the Vincent family. And my dad would pick me up from school. We played till dinner. And after dinner, friends came over. We played till bedtime. Uh, When I was five, we had a television show, a radio show, made our first recording. So I just enjoyed this, just this intense life of music. I thought everyone else, I thought you were doing the same thing at your house. 
<laughs> so uh, it wasn't until I got to be a teenager and I found out that Barb Wheeler, Tommy Parsons were at the uh, skating rink. I was still sitting home playing and there was some rebellious years, I think, there that I wasn't as thankful. But I I feel thankful that my father, my, my mother prepared me for what I do now. And, uh, and I love it. And, and, you know, and a friend of ours said, she said, I saw how intensely that your family lived music. And she said, I thought when you got old enough that you would just take off and that you would grow to hate it. But instead I just grew to love it. And my, my brothers and I, we love the music and, and feel thankful that, you know, we have now our career is in something that is so natural to us. Mm -hmm. And, but I feel that, a lot of what comes from your music is the inspiration behind your hometown, Kirksville, Missouri, right? Um, is is where you basically started uh, your music passion, right? And uh, speaking of Missouri, I've got something here I got to show you now because I found this interesting. This is actually a vintage piece, um, but it's actually um, Branson. Oh my goodness! Yes. Yeah, Have you I had Branson. I, I, I have never been to Branson, but I was actually interviewing uh, Ellen Peterson from the Petersons. Um, and uh, I was talking about Branson and the great food there and uh, recommendations uh, if I were to ever <laughs> visit Branson. Um, but why am I showing you that sweater? Um, I think it's because, you know, you started your life there. Um, can you take me back to those days? Well, that was um even more intense uh this was when i was a teenager so we played in Branson, missouri at silver dollar city silver dollar city and uh, we played there monday through friday we played there five days a week we punched a time clock we're probably getting minimum wage but we did one our shows today. My my mom and dad, my brother Darren, and so we day, sometimes Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday night drive back, and at eight a.m. on a Monday morning, we were playing again five one-hour shows. So it's a great place to, I guess, to train your family to get experience on stage. You know, no matter your age, really. Uh, they have. I just saw Violet Hensley just made a visit back to Silver Dollar City, and she played a tune. She's 106 years young. Is that bizarre? And wow. she was there, I think yeah. it was last week. So I, it's a wonderful heritage. And I think it's something that you, you know, you, you love the people. So you love to go back there. We always play there usually on Mother's Day weekend and they have a, a bluegrass and barbecue. And, you know, one of the greatest life lessons happened right at Silver Dollar City, um, it was it was one of these days when we were playing one of our five-hour shows, and it was pouring down rain. Now, most of the other bands, when it was raining, they would just kind of they would just kind of sit there and wait till the rain passed. Because I mean, you looking out, there was no one. It was just a down steady downpour. My dad's my brother and I are like, you know what? Let's mom, dad, let's just wait. He said, no. They're paying us to play, and we're going to play our shows. So we played all of our shows to no one that day. The next week, my dad gets a call from Hal Durham. He was the general manager of the Grand Ole Opry. 
And he said, Mr. Vincent, I'd like to invite your family to come sing, to come perform on the Grand Ole Opry. Well, we had just met Charlie Leuven and my dad thought he had recommended us. And he said, well, we want to thank Charlie Leuven for recommending us for the Grand Ole Opry. And Hal said, um, Charlie had nothing to do with this. And dad said, well, how did you, how did you find out about my family? He said, last week, while your family was playing in the rain, he said, I was on vacation with my family around the corner listening. And that's how my family got to be on the Grand Ole Opry the very first time, because you always do your best, no matter what you do, no matter where you are, no matter how, you know, it might look really bad. Maybe there's no one there. You just never know. So always do your best. It's a, it was a great life lesson that I have carried to me from that very day. Mm-hmm. And speaking of family band, uh, the Sally Mountain Show, tell me more about that. Well, that was my mom and dad. Uh, we, we were the Sally Mountain Show. It was a teenager. It was just the three of us. Before that, when it was born, uh, the title came from our TV show. Uh, before that, you know, my dad performed with his uncles and his dad and the Foggy River Boys and I don't know, all different kind of names that they had. Well, then when I was five, we had this television show. It was a live show. I think every Friday morning at 5.45 a.m., it was a farm report show. And we would go on and play. Well, they gave us the name The Sally Mountain Show because it was my my grandpa, mom, and dad, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. It wasn't just the Vincent family. And the Sal- Sally Mountain is an actual geographic location up in northern Missouri by my hometown of Greentop. And so everybody knew about it. It has, it was, it has legendary status in that Sally Mosley lived on this um it's not really a mountain. It's the highest point around here. And she was an old time fiddler and you're probably too young to know what a bad house is, but uh, she ran some moonshine and some other not so good activities over there, but she was legendary. And she originated the tune. They say Sally Gooden. That's very, very popular. And so that was known around the area. So they named our TV show, the Sally mountain show. And we just kind of carried that. We carried that name on from then on. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, you know, carrying on the tradition of the Sally Mountain Show, um, you you had stardom um, when it comes to, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure when your stardom started. Can you elaborate more on um, when you figured out that you were getting a lot of traction on, on the internet or, you know, in the music industry? Well, I think it's a gradual thing. And I mean, I see some people that go, Phew! They start up, they, they go very fast, but my dad always says what goes up must come down. So I think you have to be very careful if you are starting a career in pretty much anything, you know, you want it, you want it to be very stable and you, you don't, you won't want to just soar up high and then come straight back down. You want, I, I feel like you want to, you want to just kind of, or I like that I can continue to do what I'm doing now, but it was for many years. I, even though I was ha- attaining success, uh, always look, and I think I do that now, always looking to what's the next opportunity, what's the, we're recreating new music, and no matter what you do, and no matter how successful you are, there's an expect, there becomes an expectation that from this last project, I mean, we won a Grammy with um, uh, all the, the, with um, all the Rage Volume 1, and then, so, okay, what's going to be the next one? Then we just got a Grammy nomination. We didn't win the Grammy, but we got a nomination nomination in the songs and and this this uh, CD has done so very well music is what i see so now the challenge began becomes we've just recorded another project 
people are already asking when I'm ready for a new song. You know, it's been what, two years. We're ready for, we're ready for new music. So it we're in the midst of, I don't want to just release something. It has to be just right. And I think that's what we're doing. And to really answer your question, I don't think it was till just a few years ago that I looked around it's like, okay, we're very comfortable in what we're doing. And, and you go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is my career, but I don't think it was anything that was so apparent. It wasn't this immediate hit song. It was just a, a gradual move from here. And then there's also a, what do you call success? And, you know, to, that's different things for different people. Um, my husband wants me to retire now. And I think that's a, a really great milestone to know if I wanted to stay home, that I have worked and have, have saved enough that I could possibly do that. I don't want to do that. And I don't plan to do that, but there's a comfort in, I think it's transitioned me into a different thought and a different in our playing that I can, I can take more risk maybe because I have reached a degree of success and I love what we do. And so it gives me a little bit of a, I guess, a, for some people, maybe it's like, okay, I'm going to play it safe now. But for me, I'm, this next project is going to be very, something else that's very unique. And I think, I feel like it's given me the confidence to go, okay, let's, let's really try something that maybe we haven't done before or people are not expecting and for sure, this last album was challenging songs. We did un uh, the first bluegrass version of Unchained Melody. And I have challenged myself now on the new project. I can't wait till you hear the new songs. But I have once again taken songs that I feel are the most challenging in my lifetime. No, absolutely. And uh, talking about, um, you know, accomplished musician you know researching what you were doing and your career i came across that you became an accomplished musician in the 1970s um and you know I, i'm like wow i can't imagine what those times were like in the 1970s you know it's so interesting i was actually like i'm very into like the 1940s 1950s type music Ooh. um so i i love listening to people like gene autry and um all those other like older older artists and you know why why do you feel that or actually do you feel that when people say you're an accomplished musician um do you ever be like well thank you for that compliment or like how do you how do you keep yourself humble from those moments well uh, there are so many incredible musicians i do what i do but i don't i would i always thought that was my fallacy in my mind. I thought when I get out of high school, I'm going to Nashville and I'm going to be a studio musician. I'm going to be this professional musician. And like I say, I play what we play and, and, and I do what I do. But I to say I'm a Sierra Hall, I mean, she's a mandolin player of the year and I do not play anywhere near the degree that she plays or Chris Thiele or some of these people. So, uh, but I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliment. And I, you know what? It's fun for me that I I can play, uh, that I have the confidence to to work out and and play, you know what I like to play. Some some uh, instruments better than others. It's exciting for me to work with these amazing musicians that I have in my band and get to appreciate uh, what they do. But I'm glad I have an an understanding because we were in the studio recently and I produced the music, and it occurred to me it's like okay. I can't play on the dobro, you know, Jeff's playing on playing certain things on the dobro. I can't play that per se, 
but I can sing to him the notes that I want. I can I, I know enough to uh, create a, a solo or something specific that I can, that I can relate to him. So it's like, I'm thankful that I can, that I can do that. And that, that is fun. And, and 1973 to say I was the Missouri state fiddle champion. Uh, I, I played the fiddle a lot back then. I do not play it nearly as much. And it is one of those difficult instruments that if you don't play it every day, it's going to really, it slaves me. Yeah. And uh, going back to what you were saying about uh, Unchained Melody, um, that's such a hard song because it's such, uh, you know, challenging range. Um, oh, it, yes. It's, it, it's so high. Um, and I remember watching Elvis, the film uh, recently, uh, with my brother and um i i was just taken aback about you know his story you know and and how success can just crash down on you so hard um and him challenging himself to keep himself going every night and um and then i'm seeing you and you're performing on stage and whatever do you ever feel like do you ever tell yourself you know i gotta take a break from performing for a little bit and just really take some time to really reflect on what i'm doing uh, do you ever uh, do you ever have those moments? Well, uh, that's where I am now. I don't live in Nashville, so I'm not in this constant. Uh, you know, the, if I'm in Nashville, it seems like there's something to do every second. And I come home, and yesterday I spent the day in my pajamas and I watch TV all day. So yes, there are times, but we play almost every week. But you, I come to Missouri. I'm in the serenity of the lake. I'm with my husband and I've always done that. And I think that's something that's kept me grounded and centered is I don't live in Nashville, although I have a home there and my grandson is there, my daughter, and, and I love going there, love spending time there, but it's important that I come home and I just kind of hit reset. It's like, boop, I hit reset and it lets me be refreshed when we all leave on Thursday and we play, we're going to play almost 10 days in a row. And so, but I, I get to come home and be refreshed. And I think that's important when you, and I, here's another thing. My husband has booked me up until this past December and I don't have, he's been, he managed me. It came from a different place. And I watch people get swallowed up by the manager and, uh, and the agency and, and here's what you have to do. And you, uh, you, I think the greatest thing is the pressure of money. And it's like, okay, we've just put, a half a million dollars in you, or we put $2 million in you, there's, there becomes a pressure that you have to, um, you have to then produce, you have to, um, make this money back for us. And so that's the thing. Oh, <laughs> my husband's asking if I can come in. It's like, no, you can't. I'm on an interview, <laughs> but I, I think it's, uh, it's important that you be centered. And that's something that I would safeguard the newer artists is finding a balance in that try to find somewhere in what you do that it doesn't get so crazy. And, and you do. And then if you look at, well, everybody from Whitney Houston to Elvis Presley, all of these people, they get swallowed up in that. And then they, something I think to, to try to give them a sense of reality or maybe to remove them from the craziness, they resort to drugs and alcohol. And, and I think that's, that's something you really have to be grounded and not let that happen. It's very sad. No, absolutely. And I, I totally agree with you. I think it's, and you know, I don't know how many people understand that like, you know, this is a challenging business, you know, it's, you, it's it's a really cutthroat business because you never know what someone could tell say about you and 
Um, but sometimes you got to have thick skin and, you know, you, you really got to learn how to absorb those things. But um, uh, speaking of that, I think um, you had a record deal in 1986, if I'm not mistaken. And then you released three solo albums, uh, 1988, 1991. Um, what do you remember about those records? Well, those were my, I think I was in search of, those were my first albums because I, I was had performed with my family. I was continuing to perform with my family during that time. But also um, I had just, I'd been with Jim Ed Brown. I got a little taste of Nashville, decided that I wanted to come back home, continue to play with my family, but also reaching out and starting to make my solo projects. So I think I was finding my way. What is my style? What, because I came from a family that you know, it, when I was five, we grandpa sang Bill Monroe songs. My dad would sing a Porter Wagner song. Aunt Catherine sang like Kitty Wells. Mom singing Loretta Lynn. So we sang a mixture of gospel and bluegrass and country. It was a, a melting pot. It wasn't so distinguished of what style are you. And it wasn't really until 2000, I think, that I, in that same thing, I signed with Rounder Records. They, the previous ones, I was doing, I was adding a little steel guitar, electric guitar, bluegrass, banjo, whatever. It was a melting pot of everything I knew from my family. And I needed to find a focus. And Alan Jackson gave me that greatest piece of advice one day. He said, don't chase an audience. Like I was like, here's a country song. Here's this song. He said, don't chase an audience. Let them chase you. So basically do what you do, you know, do it, do what you do and let them find you. And so 2000, I recorded I think 24 songs for that rounder album till it came down to 12 songs. And I found the perimeters and I, Ken Irwin, one of the owners said, there is a void. No, there's no females out here playing straight ahead down the pike, traditional uh, bluegrass music. And so I kind of found my way into that niche. And at that point, and it's also like being in the right place at the right time. Everything seemed to click from there. The um, the Wall Street Journal did a review on the album, uh, Back Home Again. They said, they said, Rhonda Vincent, the new queen of bluegrass. Um, I won my first IBMA of seven consecutive at that time, now eight. And I got a sponsorship with Martha White. I was signed with an agency. So everything kind of came together at that point. But I think Alan was so right, is finding that focus. Even though we, I get to step outside the boundaries a little bit, there's a, there's a focus. I think when you hear our music, you have a very good idea of what you're going to hear. Absolutely. And, you know, there was Alison Krauss. Alison Krauss um, really uh, summed it up really well about your talent. And um, she was she won Female Vocalist of the Year at the International Bluegrass Music Association Awards in 1991. Um, and she credited you as her main influence. Um, when you think about someone like that, that just has such a God gifted talent and Alison Krauss herself, uh, what does that mean to you to know that someone like her um, really, you know, thanks you for, you know, influencing her career. Well, we grew up together, so it, it is really amazing. It was 1985 when I was with Jim Ed Brown. My dad hired Allison to play fiddle in the band. She wasn't even singing yet. So I've got to watch her from day one. She was fiddling, and then all of a sudden she started singing. And and I, she's a dear friend, and I'm so proud of her. I've watched her blossom into this amazing artist and create her own. I mean, really, can you define the, the music of Alison Krauss? She has created her own style of music almost. 
No, certainly. Yeah, and you know, like watching Alison Krauss and Vince Gill uh, when they were on CMT Crossroads, um, that's one of my favorite things to watch. It's it just so cool to see the relationship that, you know, artists have with each other, um, the collaborations, you know, the camaraderie of, of having to collaborate with others and, and talk about music and then perform in front of a crowd, you know, like, is there anything better than that? I don't think so. Um, I it, love the I love the collaborations. That's one of my favorite things about that. You never know who you're going to be singing with or. Yeah. And, and yeah, speaking of collaborations, I mean, can we talk about uh, Daryl Singletary, uh, the record American oh, Grandstand? Absolutely. Um, and do you know why I was playing American Grandstand before you came on? I do not know. Why were you playing that? Because it's one of my favorite records. Oh, thank you. It's it's really cool. Um, you know, Daryl Singletary and, and yourself, there's just a blend that just works perfectly together. Um, but um, the, the lyrics in, I think, two of my favorite songs are the title track, American Grandstand, and as we kiss a world goodbye, um, oh wow, are are two of my favorites off that record. Um, you know, he says, uh, "As we kiss our world goodbye, I can feel the mountains tremble. As the sun falls from the sky, I can hear the angels weeping. As we kiss our world goodbye, when you Ooh, hear you those, when you hear those lyrics, um, what what comes to mind? Well, what comes to mind is the very first time that I played that song for him. Billy Yates wrote that song, and I loved it, and I played it for him." And I knew how, where the content came from. Billy was in Norway, I believe, and he got ready to leave when he wrote that. So it was just basically a farewell as he was saying goodbye to Norway and his friends there. But Daryl immediately, he immediately thought it was over a death. And I get chills thinking because I, knowing that that's how he felt when we sang that song, that he felt that it was a, it was a goodbye to the world and, and, and over a death. And then at his passing, it just gives me chills. In fact, I could not listen to this album and a lot of this for a very, very long time because it just made me so sad. I love him so much and I love singing with him and I miss getting to do that. Uh, I just, the, the songs on that album, that, that entire project was very special and so fun making that. He just, we had talked about making a project because we had sang together around Nashville, usually with 45 RPM. We'd sang for several years. And I'd always say, you know, can we do, or you want to do a project? But he never really, he didn't really follow through with that. And of all the times, I think I had eight, I had seven projects already started. I was doing all the rage. I I had all these projects going and he calls me and out of the blue and says, hey, let's do this project. And my husband said, are you kidding me? We've already got all this money out. We're already, you're already got to have seven projects started. Don't be doing this. But I just had this, I felt in my heart there was an urgency. He was ready to do this. And I pushed all of those aside and we went in and thank goodness we did knowing now that he, I mean, I think it was within a year that he had passed. And so I'm so thankful that we we made the album. We did shows together. Uh, I got to know him. I mean, we would be um, we'd be sitting there working on songs or recording. He go, I got to go. I got to get home and put my ham on. So he would he would cook for his family. He would one day I called him. I said, What are you doing? And he said, I'm sitting in my truck crying. It's like why? And he's his sons were. Um, five years old. He has twin, has twin boys and they were five. He said, I dropped them off at school 
And they said, please, daddy, take us with you. We don't want to, we don't want to go. We want to go with you. And so he was just sitting there crying because his boys didn't want to, they wanted to stay with him. And I mean, in reflecting back now, it's like, oh my goodness, it just, it, it makes your heart really, really sad. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of, you know, collaborations and all those things, uh, we are coming to the end of the interview. It's it's uh, nine minutes remaining on this meeting time. Uh, so I'm going to wrap it up by talking about uh, the Grand Ole Opry member invited induction. Um, what do you remember about those two nights and what stands out? Oh, I mean, that's a, my greatest dream come true. Uh, there's uh, so many different things around that. I mean, first of all, people say, did you know this was coming? It's like, I had no idea, no idea. It was a normal Opry appearance. It was my 215th appearance on the Grand Ole Opry. So, and I had already decided I probably would never be a member. I had really told myself that because it's like, that's a dream that I longed for for so many years. It's like, okay, I'll never be a member, but I'm so fortunate that I get to play the Opry. 215th time, Jeannie Seeley walks out and she's asking me because she wrote the song Like I Could that's from our latest CD. And she said, when are you going to finish the CD? So I thought she was just making small talk like she has before. And she then says, one more thing. How would you like to be a member of the Grand Ole Opry? And I said, are you serious? Because I thought... I thought all of a sudden maybe I slipped into a coma and I was <laughs> and I was dreaming or something. It did not seem real. It's like, oh my goodness. And she said, What is your answer? And it's like, yes, a hundred percent. So that was life-changing. Life's changing to have something that you love so much. I love the Grand Ole Opry, and people ask me, what's so special about it? It's like because I grew up listening to this and the people, the history of this, of this, uh, the Grand Ole Opry, and the people who have performed there before you. It's like a, almost a confirmation. Uh, in fact, my doctor called me and she said, told me that I, she can see, and I hadn't seen her in person, but she said, you have this new confidence. This has given you a confidence that she said, I have never seen in you before. And I think it did. It's like, it was like giving me a stamp of approval. Yes, you are good enough to be on this stage. So that was exciting. And then the evening that I was inducted, I mean, that was, uh, I had to wait 343 days to be inducted. That, that's historical. That's the longest anyone in the history of the Grand Ole Opry has, has waited to be inducted. And then it's also historical. And my brother, Darren, is a, is a member of the group Daly and Vincent. And this, we are the very first ever brother and sister to hold separate Opry membership. So there's so many special things around this. I was inducted by Dirk Spentley. My first song I sang after that was a duet with Dirk Spentley. We sang Mama Tried. And people say, "What? so what's different? You're an Opry member. Well, one of the coolest things is the days previous, just before this, I was talking to Jeannie Seeley on the phone when Jeannie Pruitt beeped in. So call Jeannie Pruitt back while I'm talking to her. Ricky Skaggs texts, Marty Stewart texts, Dirks Bentley texts, and Brad Paisley texts. Uh, Dirks was saying, do you want to sing a song after I induct you? So that's some of the coolest things ever that you get this. That when they say you're joining a family, like Jeannie said, you're my Opry sister. And it is a family. It truly is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's such a great story. And, you know, congratulations on that. I mean. I, I was I was watching that moment and I, I couldn't help but be so happy for you because, you know, it's about time that 
people recognize talents like you it's it's crazy that you know you have such vocal talents that's just undeniable um well i mean i I mean it seems as though our time together sadly come to an end but it was such an honor to chat with you tonight and congratulations on all the success you're having and continuing to have um to the listeners who made it this far into the episode thanks so much for sticking around i hope you enjoyed my conversation with american bluegrass singer songwriter multi-instrumentalist wanda vincent you can find her on instagram facebook twitter and youtube and I would not forget by mentioning for further information about them, for further information about Rhonda, you can visit rondavincent.com. Thanks so much again, Rhonda, for taking for talking with me. Take care. Thank you. You too. Many blessings. If you'd like to help spread the word about my podcast, please do feel free to share it with others, post about our social media. Any form of support is greatly appreciated. Thank you again for listening. I've been your host, Shigby Keltsang. See you in the next episode. <music> Thank you.